Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A's. There aren't too many questions this week because I think a lot of people expected me to be gone. Uh, so since I'm here, I wanted to do these anyway. And I guess I'll try and spend a little extra time on people's questions since there aren't as many. But the weeks that there are more questions, I'm going to try to keep it shorter for each just to be able to have time for everybody. But we got some room. So let's uh, let's see what we could do and, and see what we got this week. Starting us out, both Tomochi and Anapan wanted to discuss forcing resolutions on the PlayStation 2 using GSM, and while I am far from an expert on that, I do have a lot of experience with it, and mostly not good luck, to be honest. Most of the time, when I've forced a different resolution or aspect ratio, it didn't really come out looking right. I have gotten lucky a few times, but it's certainly not as reliable as a game like OutRun, where you could just select, do you want to load in progressive scan mode or not? But luckily, there's a few things to discuss. First, the Games with Alternate Display Modes archive has been moved over to the wiki, and I think that's awesome. I think there were a couple of archives out there that may or may not have gone stagnant, or uh, or they're out there, but they're, you know, it's, it's all combined into one place now, which is pretty great. There's a good write-up that describes how you could achieve this by trying to patch ROMs, or by using GSM, or some kind of cheat codes, or even anything like the Exploder HDTV player. But the most important thing is that it has the list here of what people have tried and the luck that they've had with it. So anybody watching on video, you could see that 16 by 9 hacks are generally easier than the rest of them, but there are options for games that can support up to 1080i, 480p, 480p on PAL, and even 240p, which is something that Anapan wanted to talk about because you could force 240p on a lot of these games and even choose which scan line is favored because you're just kind of dropping the resolution a little bit. So any of those bicubic interpolated games could be made sharp again with the right settings. And this is especially true for any of the games that were originally 240p but shown in 480i on the PlayStation 2. So any of the uh, like old collections type of thing that happened to be in 480i, you could get really great results on a CRT with that. So this is something that I would love to see more people dig into. I know Tomochi had mentioned that Wobbling Pixels has a bunch of videos about GSM on the PS2, and I'm obviously a big fan of Wobbling Pixels channel, so I would highly recommend checking those out. But I am glad that more people are paying attention to this because the PS3 library really is predominantly 480i. And if you do have any kind of widescreen solution, forcing 16 by 9 mode, not stretching, but having the display area opened up is a very cool bonus. But I don't think it's as big of an upgrade as forcing 480p when it's able to be done in the game itself. Of course, motion adaptive deinterlacing with the RetroTINK 5X and uh, GBS control are excellent. They're certainly a more than good enough solution, but they will never be, and no deinterlacer will ever be as good as just rendering in 480p. It was certainly not a shot at Mike or at Rama for those two projects. It just, I think they would be the first people to say that as well. If you could ever render a game in a higher resolution, you're going to get mostly better results than you would with any kind of deinterlacing. I'm sure we're going to find one scenario where deinterlacing to 480p might knock the frame rate down by by a couple of numbers, but 
generally speaking, I don't think you'd have anything like that to worry about. I think just forcing to 480p would be the better move. And on the flip side, I think forcing to 240p could be done and you don't really have to worry about any kind of repercussions. If it works, it just looks better for games that support it. So totally up to you on what you prefer and how you prefer to play this stuff. But if you have the ability to force different modes and you want to play in 480p, I strongly recommend at least referencing the wiki seeing if it's even possible. And even if it's not, try it yourself. Maybe somebody made a mistake. Maybe there's a new version of GSM that supports different games or anything like that. But as you can see, there's a lot of no's on this list. So you're really going to have to try for yourself and see and cross your fingers. Sure, sure wanted to follow up on the conversation from last week about doing a JAMA and console mixed project. And they put it on hold for now, which I think is a good move because there's a lot of factors that go into that where you could start out doing one piece of that puzzle, test it out for yourself and kind of go from there with very minimal cost and effort. Whereas if you jump right into the full project, you might end up at the end of it going, I guess I didn't need all that. So, you know, probably a good move. But there were a few questions for this week. Do I know of any good HDMI matrix switchers for gaming? I finally threw in the towel and bought two of them this week. Uh, One of them, they're basically the exact same things as the HDMI splitters I just reviewed, but they have matrix switch capabilities, four in, two out. And so far, so good. I was actually kind of impressed with them, all things considered. So uh, I still have trust issues with my capture setup. So I've been using either just directly plugging things into whatever capture card I'm using or a manual bi-directional push button switch, which I have it right here, because this is, sorry, I'm getting caught here. This is essentially the exact same as unplugging and replugging. It just basically switches between whatever pin set is in there. And I really wish there were more like this on the market that had multiple inputs. I know that's a really hard thing to accomplish because there's signal integrity, there's interference. There's a whole lot of things involved that make it more complicated. But having a single push button switch, you know, like a manual push button with a bunch of inputs and one output would guarantee compatibility because it's the same as, you know, unplugging and replugging. But that would have to be a very carefully routed board. Otherwise, you could have some things go wrong with it. So I understand why that's not easily available. However, the ones that I found are basically the exact same as the splitters that I had except they're a matrix switch as well, which means they're PS3 compatible, wink, wink. Um, They do not compress colors. They don't mess with the audio. One of them has digital audio extraction, and it's equally as meh as you'd imagine. It's great for the price, but I would never call it a high-end DAC or anything like that. And it does work with the OSSC Super Nintendo and 5X mode. Now, the reason I haven't done the write-up yet is because I'm still kind of working on testing and throwing a bunch of stuff at it. And unfortunately, even if I do end up getting a flawless test bed in this thing, doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work that way for you. And one of the scenarios that always tripped me up is if I was switching between sources that are wildly different, like uh, OSSE with SNES and 5X and uh, Nintendo Switch in 1080p and then an Apple TV 4K. And that's when it really tripped everything up and I would have to power cycle everything. So I'm going to keep using it. I'll do the review soon-ish. Um, and, you know, hopefully I'll let you know, or I'll, I'll let all of you know what I think of it. 
One very cool thing about the downscaling one is, because uh, that's the same thing as the Switch, is when I was able to hook it up to my camera for these recordings, it was really cool to be able to say, okay, I need to record all of the intros to this fancy new video I have coming up, so I just record it in 4K, and then rather than go into the camera settings and switch it over to uh, downscale the HDMI output to 1080p, I just flipped the Switch right on the HDMI matrix switch and poof, it was 1080p and everything looked fine. So that was cool. There's definitely things that I think for streamers might be in the same scenario. I think there's a bunch of things that both of those switches might be a help for, um, but they're not the best of the best. They're not going to solve every retro gamers problem, but they're like 50 bucks. So, you know, I, feel okay recommending something that's probably going to work for 50 bucks as opposed to recommending something for 500 that still might have issues but might work a little better so um, i'll get to that somewhat soon but i'll at least leave the links here for anybody who suffers through these q a's now you're you can at least get early access to what i'm testing and so far so good is has been performing well Next, Shorger is getting VGA to work on their Luva CRT soon, and they want all their sources to be in 31 kilohertz into the CRT. Would a GBSC be able to upscale or downscale these sources to fit? Yes, absolutely. I would check out the classic consoles on VGA monitors video that I did a while back just for some more recommendations on different things that you could use. Maybe you already have some extra pieces of the puzzle laying around, but generally speaking, the GBSC was great and it was even able to do things like motion adaptive deinterlace 480i, add scan lines to make it look pretty accurate. So it's totally up to you. The, um, Forgetting the name of the other scaler, I I want to say it's the retro scaler. Some uh, I forgot what it was called, but that one was the cleanest of all of those solutions. But that was pretty expensive, and I don't think it did any kind of de. I forgot how it even handled deinterlacing. So yeah, the GBSC might actually be a better choice for you. But I would reference that video anyway, just to make sure in case maybe you already have a few pieces laying around and you could just test with what you got. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Vladimir Raskin had some concerns about the Time Harvest Picture Adjust box. And that's the thing that I reviewed a while back, I guess over a year ago now, time really flies, that has a bunch of RCA inputs or a SCAR input, and then a SCAR output and a bunch of RCA outputs, and allows you to adjust horizontal and vertical position of the image. The device is one in and one out at a time only, period. Even though there's multiple of both, that's just for convenience. You cannot do, you cannot connect two in and two out at the same time in any combination. One in, one out, that's it. But it seemed pretty safe. It passed RGB through without touching it at all. And even the sync line seemed like the voltage was fine. So this is one of those things where I personally tested it in some scenarios that I think cover a bunch of average use cases, but I absolutely cannot guarantee that it will be perfect in every scenario. And I would say that about any analog video device, to be honest with you. So I'm not throwing shade at the time harvest box or anything like that. But Vladimir did have a few questions and concerns. 
Um, first, it seems like it was not working with component video, which makes total sense because in the review, I showed that it's only affecting the sync line. So you would have to convert component to RGB in order for that to, to still have the functionality that it did before. It won't work just passing component video through because the YPVPR are going through the RGB lines, which are just being passed through. They're not being touched at all by the circuit. So that's, that's an easy one. Um, next, is there a good way to test the safety of it without dropping a ton of money on an oscilloscope? No, because video signals are constantly changing. You could see in, that, uh, in the review, the square wave of the sync signal that's why you need an oscilloscope. It's not a straight line like standard voltages. Um, but it's one of those things where unless you have really weird cables and consoles and stuff like that, I wouldn't really worry about it, especially depending on what you're going into. So you said uh, mentioned that you're going into a PVM20L5 and a RetroTank 5X. The outputs that I've seen are definitely safe for a 20L5. I say definitely with the same disclaimer as before. You never know. If somebody wires something crazy, who knows what's going to happen. But the RetroTank 5X, in the testing that I have done, should still be able to handle the sync as long as you don't go crazy with it, as long as you don't feed it a high-voltage source, as long as you're feeding it the same sources that would work with the RetroTank 5X. You really shouldn't have an issue with it. Um, you know, all disclaimers aside. So, of course, if you plug in something that would have blown up the RetroTank 5X anyway and you run it through the time harvest box, that's not going to fix it. But if you already have a working setup and standard well built cables, you should be okay with this. Um, also, is there a better solution that I would recommend for easily adjusting H and B positions on a PVM? The only thing that I've ever run into was the Extron boxes, uh, the Extron 201 and 203 RXI. Those were very handy, but they're old used equipment, which means it might work flawlessly, or you might need to recap the whole thing, or you might get one of the ones with the bum power supplies, and even after you recap it, there's a couple of weird wavy lines on the screen. So if you already own the Time Harvest box, I would say just stick with it. And the only thing to consider might be getting like a, a comp to RGB, the RetroTank product, so that you could run your component video consoles through that and then into your SCART setup and then have this be the final uh, bit of the chain. And that way you could have everything run through this in order to make those adjustments. If you have any concerns about the voltage at all, you could pick up one of those $100 scopes and just follow the video that I did on how to use it. But I mean, with all disclaimers aside, my gut is telling me that you should be fine for all of this and that you should be able to just pick up one of those boxes without issue. Brian Miller said, quick question. They're wondering if anyone has compared the sound out of the NES RGB versus the sound coming from the NES itself. Is there an advantage to having the sound running through the NES RGB, or could you just bypass it and continue to use the RCA jack? This is in relation to a front loader. Well, I'll give you the quick answer, and then I'm going to have to explain a little bit, because while the question was easy, the answer is pretty complicated. So your direct Question number one, has anyone compared the sound out of the NES RGB versus the sound from the NES itself? Yes, there's a bunch of sound comparisons that have been done over the years, although I would love to have a definitive thing posted somewhere, hopefully the wiki or something like that. But I don't know of anyone right off the top of my head I could just uh, refer you to. So check out Firebrand X's website and YouTube channel, look into any of the work that Ace has done. But I would love to see this centralized in one place. I'll 
I'll get back to that in a second. Your other question, is there an advantage to having the sound running through the NES RGB in a front loader, or should you continue to use the RCA jack? So that all depends on if you're using expansion audio. If you're wiring in Famicom expansion audio, things like the NES mods or NES RGB mix those signals together on the console, but the expansion audio was designed to be mixed in the cart. So if you're going to add the the Famicom expansion audio channel, you might want to just add the one jumper and then leave everything alone on the on the motherboard itself and just pull audio out of the RCA jack and not really worry about it. But it goes a lot deeper than that. So here is a very quick background that's not at all complete. So if Ace hears this, he's going to facepalm and be upset with me. But basically, it's generally regarded that the original Famicom has the best audio mix and, and very good audio quality. And with each revision, audio changes a little bit. And some revisions, I think one of the AV Famicom revisions is known to have kind of bad audio. And then the front loader isn't bad, but it could be improved upon. So if you really want to go down the rabbit hole of trying to get the best, or at least what's perceived as the best audio from these consoles, I would really research any of the MD Fourier work uh, or, or the crew that works on MD Fourier. I don't know if it's on NES yet, but they certainly would have more of an insight than I would too. Uh, I would also suggest Firebrand X and Ace's work. And I did check in with Tian Fong about this, and he said. For the combination of the front loader, he likes swapping the R9 resistor with 82K and then doing a jump between pins 3 and 9 and then doing a 4.7K pulldown off those. And that was originally from Ace's suggestion, but he prefers 100K versus 82K. Bernie and T think 82K mixes better. So this is just a small glimpse into the crazy friends that I'm lucky enough to have in the detail that they go into when they do these mods. So if you're the type of person who has really good hearing, still a wide range of hearing, and little audio things bug you, I would absolutely take the time to go down the rabbit hole. And, you know, when you're talking about switching resistors out, it's not a lot of work and it's very little cost. So that's something that you might want to look into. But if you just want to be able to hear the audio from your games and you just want to be able to hear it in a good way. You know, you don't, you don't want some muffled crap. You don't want something that sounds like the terrible clone consoles. You just, you want a, a good way to get the audio out of your NES. I would just kind of leave it alone, especially if you're mixing in the expansion audio, which is just one jumper on the motherboard. I would kind of just leave it alone and, and have it as the original. Because while we could all debate till we're blue in the face, what's the best or a better way to play, it's really rare that anybody would say that just using the original console is a bad way to play. And I don't think that's something that you could ever say in the context of the front-loading NES. So... It's a much longer answer than I would have liked to have give. The only other thing too is I I really do hope people would or anybody in the community who has the who has access to all of the different board revisions and stuff would be able to upload certain captures of different things. Uh, you know, maybe if MD Fourier is officially released for the NES, we could jump down this. But also just a couple of games with standard soundtracks and stuff that we all listen to, like the Castlevania Three Famicom expansion audio and that stuff. And I would love to have recordings and you know done properly with MD Fourier certified equipment, captured in FLAC and uploaded to hopefully the wiki. 
But not only that, I would love to see somebody who's good at explaining this stuff do a YouTube video that plays these things and points out the differences so that you could first watch the video and know what you would expect to hear and then go download the FLAC files, throw on some decent headphones, and then really hear yourself without YouTube compression. That's a lot of work, so I'm certainly not saying anybody should jump out and do it right now, but I know there's tons of content creators out there who are looking for projects that really stand out that could also make a difference, and that's certainly one of them. If you get that one right, then uh, I think a lot of people would really appreciate it. So just wanted to add my thoughts on that as well. The Remora has a pretty interesting setup that I think a bunch of people might be considering or trying to build themselves, where they have a whole bunch of different consoles going into an Extron Crosspoint, which is a matrix switch with a bunch of inputs and a bunch of outputs. And part of that setup is being able to reroute consoles through it. So if you have a console that is VGA only, but you want to output some of your displays as component video, you should be able to route that VGA or RGBS through the cross point out one of the outputs into what the Remora is using is a Wakaba Video Linux Bot 3000 VGA to component converter. And then you could route that back through and out to whatever monitors use component video. And while that's very complicated and it's something that I would love to wire up at some point, uh, it is a very cool solution, but they're running into an issue. When they have it connected to something that is running RGBS, then that converter won't work. It's still kind of scanning on the RGB HV line and having both of the lines be scanning through. So that is that is going to be an issue for a setup like this. Um, I don't know any devices that would auto-detect that. And while it's possible, it's a lot of work for not too much uh you could try wiring it differently. You could try only wiring RGBS to that converter and seeing what happens. And if that works, so you're not sending the RGBHV, you're not sending the vertical signal at all. If that works, then the solution might be to get a second one or build a switch onto it or just unplug V whenever you need it. Um, or you could look into maybe different converters that would read that signal slightly different. But I think the issue is that you're mixing a whole bunch of stuff all together on the same switch and mismatching signals, which the solution that you have is pretty good. It's just you're going to run into stuff like this. And especially when it comes to the Dreamcast, you can't just use a typical sync combiner circuit in all scenarios. So like the one that Steve from HD Retrovision was nice enough to guest post on RetroRGB, that would not work if you're using an A or D series BVM and a couple of other displays and processors. You'd get the, um, the signal, like the sync curl thing going up on the top. So unfortunately, the best solution to your problem would be the HD Retrovision Dreamcast component cables, but we all know not to hold our breath for those. Uh, Rob from Retro Gaming Cables claims that they're, they're going to have Dreamcast cables, component cables for sale at some point soon that support both resolutions. So that would be a solution for you. Uh, and I would just, I would kind of do some troubleshooting to see where the problem lies, but it sounds like based on your question, the issue might just be that you could only send that converter RGBHV or RGBS from the cross point because the cross point might be putting some kind of signal on there as well. I'm oversimplifying just because I don't want to waste everybody's time with all these nitty gritty details. And because no matter what I'm speculating now, you're going to want to do that test. Just unplug the, uh, the vertical line and see if that works. 
And if that solves it, that's we'll, that, then we could discuss next steps or anything like that. And if not, I don't know, that's a weird one. You might want to remove that from the chain and just hook it up directly to see if you still have the issue without the cross point and everything else run through it. Marcello Medini wanted to follow up with a question from last week of not being able to get audio from Master System games on a triple bypassed Genesis. I tried this myself last week on a triple bypassed console and it worked fine. And they double checked everything and even used an EverDrive and made sure that they were correct. There is no audio from Master System games, but there is audio from 32X, Sega CD, and regular Genesis Mega Drive games. So, People were trying to help and said maybe it's related to C-Sync and the Z80, and I don't really know. I I really doubt that. I could be wrong because I'm pretty sure in the original bypasses, we had tested both lifting C-Sync and just leaving it on the board, and I think we left it on the board because there was no benefit. We couldn't find any, any good or bad. I can't really remember, and I think it might have differed on each motherboard revision. This was a few years ago, and we went through many motherboard revisions to test. So I would definitely be checking with other people who have done this, but I've never run into this issue at all. So anybody out there with a triple bypassed Genesis Model 2, um, I think we would need to know the exact revision of your Model 2 motherboard as well, because there's multiples in there. But I'm wondering if anybody else has had this issue. So if you're out there listening, Jose, Leon, T, anybody who's done a whole bunch of these installs, um, you know, has this ever been something that you've run into? Because I certainly have not. And we've gotten, I probably had 15, 20 triple bypassed consoles pass through here. And one of the things that I always check is master system compatibility because I always think it's funny that you could sometimes get better quality master system video out of a Genesis than you could have out of a master system. So I always fire up Afterburner because it's got the blue screen. So that's a weird one. I don't know. If anybody out there has any info, please let us know. And also, Marcello, please get the exact motherboard revision of the Model 2 just so we can help troubleshoot. Oliver Clare had a question, and I have spent the last half hour trying to answer this without going off on a rant and yelling and swearing. So I'm going to try my best one last time. If I screw this one up, I'm just going to keep this take anyway. But this one's important to me. So a couple of things. First, Oliver's question and in the way it was worded are all totally legit and cool. None of my anger or frustration is towards Oliver. It's just towards the situation. So totally chill post Oliver. That's totally fine. Um, also I'm going to start with what happened emotionless. I'm going to get into the nerdy side of things to explain what it, from a tech end, what happened. And then I'll try to sum it all up without going off the deep end, but no promises, but I, I can't, this is my last time trying to answer it. I've wasted too much time on this one. So here's what happened about a year ago. Somebody put a post on Reddit claiming that Castlevania Games was selling the wrong triad power supplies, which is false. It is 100% wrong. Every single thing in that is misinformation. I don't know if it's a troll looking to start trouble. I don't know if it's a know-it-all who just refuses to admit they're wrong. I deal with those all day long. It's very frustrating. The fact that the post is still there and hasn't been deleted probably leans more towards the know-it-all troll side of things, but... 
The fact is that a post with all misinformation is still up on Reddit, and Oliver just wanted to know if there was validity to it. Because whenever you have somebody post misinformation that sounds like they know what they're talking about, then it's why would you doubt them unless you knew the technical facts behind it? So that's why Oliver's question is completely fair and, you know, zero, zero negativity towards Oliver. So let me now explain the technical side of why this is absolutely misinformation and wrong. So I got to start by just telling the triad story so that people understand how we got to where we are now. And this is probably mildly interesting to people who are into this stuff, even outside of the context of the question. But a couple of years ago, Steve from HD Retrovision discovered a Power Plus branded power supply that performed very well and was reliable. On the HD Retrovision website, Steve put links to where you could get pigtail adapters because this power supply, I don't think could plug directly into any console. Um, I'm pretty sure you needed a pigtail for everything. Maybe it was only one, whatever it is. It was an inexpensive power supply. You could just pick up from Amazon and it worked with everything and it was great. And then it wasn't. It stopped being consistently good. And when Steve contacted the company, they were basically like, yeah, we changed the design. So then he had to find a different one. He discovered the Triad brand, which up until today has still been consistently good every time. And I think I've accidentally construed the Triad power supplies as like the best PSU ever made. And if so, that was my fault. It's the best situation for retro gamers. Because while it's not the best power supply ever, it's been consistently good every single time. And it's been used and found to be as good as originals, if not better in very small cases. So that's why the Triad started to be the best answer for so many people is just its consistency of quality and how many consoles it was compatible with uh, many different models that were also compatible so fast forward a little bit and then firebrand x took over and was able to figure out which of these triad power supplies could be plugged directly into certain consoles but most of them required some kind of pigtail adapter because either the barrel or polarity wasn't correct. So you'd have to find some kind of pigtail adapter to make it work with your console. Firebrand X still has all this stuff listed. You could still purchase them. And in some cases, it might be the right move. If you just have one console and you just want to plug it directly in without a pigtail, go for it. I would just leave some kind of sticker on that power supply because they all look the same. So like... Genesis 1, just write Genesis 1 on it. Even though it could also be used for the Jaguar, the Sega CD, whatever. At least you know where it came from. So then afterwards, Ryan from Castlemania Games tried to make this something that we in the retro gaming community could easily buy and tried to get it cheaper. Because us buying one-offs from DigiKey, Mauser, or whatever, we're paying full price plus shipping every time we order one of these. Whereas if Ryan orders in bulk, he can get a discount, and thereby we could get a discount. So everybody kind of wins. But Ryan made the very smart choice of picking one power supply that would work with everything. And in doing so, that really required a pigtail, much like the original one Steve found, for almost every console, if not every console, that you plug it into. But Ryan made that easy. You just, if you want something for Super Nintendo, you click on it, that's what arrives at your house. The power supply and the pigtail. You connect them together, you're good. I would strongly recommend labeling them 
Or if you know it's only going to ever be used on a Super Nintendo, glue that thing on so it doesn't pop off and you don't know which power supply is what. But still, it's a point-and-click solution that's cheaper you can get elsewhere that works. On the flip side, if you have a single-use station. So like myself and a lot of other people, we either display our consoles or we keep them in storage. But when we use them one at a time, we just plug one in and you know have our speakers and our monitor or whatever else. And in that situation, you buy the one power supply from Ryan, you buy all the pigtails, and then you leave it there, label everything, of course, and you just never have to mess around with different power supplies. So it was the smart move, it was the right move, and technically speaking, regardless of what uh, you might read on the internet, the bottom line is the voltage that's coming out of the end of that pigtail is exactly what's meant for that console. So to be honest, the original power supply could have been any kind of orientation with any kind of barrel adapter on it, as long as the voltage and amperage were correct. That's all that really matters. And to be honest, in a perfect world, we'd be able to order a triad power supply that had no cable. It just had a connector in the back. And then Ryan could just stock power supply cables. And that way you buy the one PSU or many PSUs, but that way you'd never have to worry. You would just have one for every console. You'd have your your longer cables, not pigtail cables for every console. That's what a perfect solution for this would be like, but that also would require custom would require custom tooling from Triad and all of that other stuff. So that's probably not going to happen because that's a lot of money. And then it would raise the money for you, which would defeat some of the purpose of Ryan getting the cost down of this stuff. So I think the way Ryan's doing it is the perfect happy medium. Um, so that end of facts, I'm going to try to sum this up as nicely as I can. So posts like this really upset me because, first of all, it's a direct slap in the face to Ryan and me and Stee and FBX, four people who work our butts off trying to do the best we possibly can for the community. And why no, none of us are perfect. No, no human ever is perfect. When you have four people that are knee-deep in this stuff all checking each other, it's very unlikely that we would get a massive mistake like this wrong. So the fact that there's a post describing this really is upsetting because it's wrong, it's insulting, and it's misinformation is being spread. And on top of that, I very quickly scrolled through and it looks like this person posts all the time. And now I'm just wondering how much of the posts are misinformation. So do what Oliver did. If you see something retro gaming related that's worded very intelligently and it seems like it might be real, ask around. Don't just take any word for it and don't sit in an echo chamber because anybody trolling in that thread is going to be agreeing with the original poster. So do what Oliver did, ask some questions, get the real answer. And hopefully if enough good people are out there spreading the right information, we can get posts like this taken down because they serve no purpose other than to just annoy everybody and cause problems like this. So there we go. This was longer than I expected the answer to be. All of my other answers were much shorter, but uh, this is the calmest and most adult answer I could possibly give to some troll on the internet. Eric Walklet said, on the subject of magnetic shielding and CRT distortion, do CRTs ever generate disruptive magnetic fields of their own? 
They've seen quite a few Wallace CRT photos in this community, so they're quick to think the answer is no, but when they set their two PVMs next to each other, the smaller of the two starts showing discoloration in the corner closest to its big brother. Is that normal? So yes, CRTs all have their own magnetic field that distorts things around it. That's one of the many, many reasons why a lot of these older consoles had metal shielding over the boards, and it's to prevent all of this type of stuff. And I've also seen a bunch of people try to stack PVMs and have the same interference that you just described. And in fact, on this setup here, whenever I have to uh, twirl that 36 inch around in order to get to the back ports, if it's on, every time I spin it around, the top goes purple because of the interference of those top CRTs. But when it's back in line like this, there's zero distortion. And I even, you know, I pulled up like um, grid patterns and stuff like that just to double and triple check, you know, is it off? You know, like if I move all the CRTs away from it, check the grid pattern, put all the CRTs back the way they are now, it's the same. It's only when I move it out does it start to get distorted. So all of these things are stuff that you're going to have to worry about. The With PVMs, I think there's a little bit more shielding than consumer grade, um, if not just because there's metal surrounding it, which, as I showed in that video, just adding metal to something does not magnetically shield it. But in the context of everything else that goes into a PVM, I'm sure that helps at least. But it's really something that you're going to have to try yourself and something that you're going to have to be careful with. Now, also remember that all of these TV studios and everything else had a wall of CRTs, just like the ones that you're seeing online. And when they're being stored, not plugged in or anything like that, there's certainly a lot less chance of any kind of permanent damage. So what I would just suggest is try to make it if possible so that you move your monitor away from each other until you stop seeing discoloration and then move it a little further. I don't know if there's an actual metric to this. I don't know if there's anything that you could you could use to in, to measure it. Um, I've seen EMI apps, and in fact, after I posted that video, I downloaded one, and it did actually work, whereas when I put it next to unshielded speakers, it started to kind of go nuts, and next to shielded speakers, it didn't. However, I, I, I wouldn't trust your cell phone for stuff like this. You, you know, if there was some kind of thing you could buy... Uh, maybe an EMF detector or something like that, that might be a little bit better. But I think when you're talking in the context of PVMs that were next to each other for years, I think if you just separate them so you don't see any color interference and then bump it a little bit more, you know, twice twice the distance from when it stopped interfering would be perfect, but not everybody's setup would allow for that. That sure as heck doesn't. So I would really just separate it till you stop seeing interference and kind of go from there. If anybody has any deeper info in, than I do on this, please, please step up and share because I am I have never tried to say that I was an expert at this. I'm only just giving the information that I've learned and the tests that I've done myself in hopes that this will at least point you in a better direction than saying just stack them up and they'll be fine. But if there's anybody out there that's an expert in this stuff, I would love to hear from you about it. Well, that's it for this time. If you'd like to participate in these, post your question wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And 
it's just more fun to scroll through in real time like you saw today. But while there are questions just happen to only be on Patreon today, anywhere that you, uh, you support is cool. Just post there. And if I ever miss a question, it is never intentional. It's most likely that the question came in after I was done recording, but before the video uploaded, or I accidentally deleted it in post or something like that. So any questions at all, fire away. If I miss one, please just DM me or re-ask it the next week. And Honestly, just thanks to everybody for the support for doing these and uh, and just for hanging out and having fun. I really do enjoy these and I especially appreciate all the support. And I just try to do these as a way to interact and just kind of say thank you. So thank you very much and I will see you next week.